BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. And welcome back to the rest of this first hour on Forum. And we're going to turn to somebody who has led some high-profile investigations for the U.S. Department of Justice, including the prosecution of public corruption in San Francisco city government. And in a collaboration with the San Francisco Police Department, his office has also gone after high-volume drug traffickers. David Anderson is a Bay Area native, and in 2018, President Trump appointed him U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of California, which includes Oakland, San Francisco, and San Jose, the city where he was born. And like U.S. attorneys across the country, Anderson has submitted his resignation to President Biden and will leave office at the end of this week. And he's here to look back on his tenure. Dave Anderson, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Scott. Delighted to be with you. Well, you're a short-termer now. you got just a few days left. Um, How are you feeling uh, after these? uh, It's been a very uh, tumultuous in a lot of ways, just, you know, not just for you, but for the country, a lot of issues confronting the Department of Justice. Uh, You know, what's what's your reflection? I realize you're still there, not quite in the rearview mirror yet, but what are your thoughts? Thank you, Scott. Yeah, it's um, you know, my my emphasis over the past two years has been decidedly local, uh, confronting the problems, the challenges of our district, which encompasses, as you note, the Bay Area, 15 counties altogether in Northern California, encompass the Northern District of California, and that 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 has been my my focus over the last two years, and I've tried to act with urgency throughout those entire two years knowing that um, the, the duration that a U.S. attorney is allowed to serve you know, can be longer or shorter depending upon uh, bigger political forces and events. So um, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to serve. I certainly will miss it, uh, but feel good about the way that we used that time uh, that we had. You know, there's uh, not everybody, I think, understands what exactly a U.S. attorney does. There's more than 90 of them across the country and U.S. territories. California has several. Uh, what is the range, what's the range of responsibilities for a U.S. attorney? You said you tried to focus on local issues. How much discretion do you have or does a U.S. attorney have on what they, what they focus on? So it's the job of the U.S. attorney in each of the judicial districts around the country to be the top federal law enforcement officer for that district. And so the U.S. Attorney's Office is is responsible for the prosecution of all federal crimes within that district, also represents the United States in civil litigation in that district. And both uh, the criminal and the civil aspect have been important over the past two years. Our 15 counties stretch from Del Norte County at the Oregon border down to Monterey, and the U.S. Attorney then uh, is is charged with upholding the law in all respects, criminal and civil, throughout that area. 
And how do you decide? Because there, you could, there are any number of directions a U.S. attorney could go. There are so many things to investigate. Well, like, do you do you rely on on tips uh, to a certain extent? I mean, how do you do? People come to you uh, and say, "Hey, I've got, I've saw this going on." Blah blah blah. I mean, how, how do you decide? Such a great question. One way that cases come to federal court is through our law enforcement partners. So FBI, DEA, ATF, Marshal Service, Postal Inspection Service, HSI, Secret Service, uh, all the way through to National Park Service, National Forest Service, and then all of our state and local partners will refer cases to us. We assess them for intake if we think that they're appropriate for federal prosecution then we'll charge them in, in federal court. So that's that's a, a, an important part of it is, is just the normal course of law enforcement intake. Another important part of it is the U.S. attorney has the opportunity to emphasize certain things. And over the last two years, I have emphasized the protection of what I view as vulnerable communities like the Tenderloin neighborhood and the protection of people who are trying to live law-abiding lives in those neighborhoods. I've also emphasized public corruption, and that's been a, a major theme for my past two years. And then the last thing I would say is, is that we put a lot of energy into outreach across all of our case categories, and uh, happy to expand on that as well. I know that you are not able to speak about ongoing investigations, and obviously some of the things you've mentioned, uh, including public corruption in San Francisco city government, uh, is one of those that is still very much ongoing. Two questions there. First of all, when you leave, what happens to that investigation or any investigation that's ongoing? Well, the, the, the all the investigations in our office, all the cases in our office go out under the name of the U.S. attorney, but the reality is that there's a, an assistant U.S. attorney or AUSA, a line prosecutor, a supervisor, who really is living that case day to day. And the tradition in the Department of Justice is that although the top positions will roll over with a change in administration, the, um, the line positions don't roll over. So that work continues. And so uh, in that sense, I would anticipate no change. In that sense, I would anticipate that the work of the office with regard to public corruption and with regard to all of our case categories will continue just as it has. I believe it was last week that you announced a major drug bust, uh, and I think you uh, called it breathtaking. That was the word you used in size and scope. Uh, it was a, a seizure, I think, of methamphetamines and other illegal drugs. Uh, is that Was that part of what you described earlier about focusing on the tenderloin, where drugs are so much a part of daily life in terms of dealing and disrupting life for the people who are trying to go about their business there just to, you know, with their families? Um, it, was that part of that investigation? The two were distinct, Scott. The takedown that you're referring to last week had more of a South Bay focus. It was district-wide in the sense that we, uh, in the course of more than 15 wiretaps, uh, eventually uh, settled on charges that really touched, as I described last week, the entire ecosystem of drug trafficking in Northern California. So all the way back from the procurement to transportation to mid-level distribution to street-level distribution, when you get down to that street level distribution, the charges that we announced last week were more South Bay focused than Tenderloin focused. 
Uh, we're coming up on a break, but, you know, a lot of people feel that the, the so-called war on drugs over the last several decades has been a terrible failure. Do you see, make a distinction between that going after people who are using maybe small-time dealers and what you've been investigating just most recently? I would I would answer your question with reference to the Tenderloin Initiative that we launched, the federal initiative for the Tenderloin, or FIT, as we call it. Our hypothesis. You know what? I'm going I'm to stop you, and I apologize because I asked the question. <laughs> but I, we're going to we have to take a break, and I want to give out the phone number, and then I promise you we will come back, and we'll, we'll I'll give you a chance to answer that question. But give us a call if you'd like to talk to Dave Anderson, the outgoing U.S. Attorney for the Northern District, eight six six seven three three sixty seven eighty six. My bad for asking a complicated question right at the end there. Eight six six seven three three sixty seven eighty six, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. More with Dave Anderson after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And we continue our conversation now with U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of California, Dave Anderson. And what questions do you have for him? He's the Bay Area's top federal prosecutor, at least for a few more days. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Dave, let me let me answer the question that I asked about drugs and the war on drugs uh, before I so rudely interrupted you. Go right ahead. Uh, no, no problem, Scott. I, 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 as a lawyer, as you might imagine, um, I'm accustomed to both interrupting and being interrupted. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever been interrupted so kindly and gently as Objection. you just interrupted me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just had started to answer your question with reference to the FIT program. I think that you know the phrase that you used in framing your question, the war on drugs, obviously has lots of meaning for lots of different people. And so in an effort to to answer your question in terms that I can define, the FIT program that we uh, announced in August 2019 uh, is is predicated on the idea that the Tenderloin neighborhood in San Francisco is mostly populated by people who are trying to live law-abiding lives and that uh, their lives and that neighborhood is being oppressed by lawlessness and that we will do everything we can to oppose that lawlessness in the federal court system, recognizing that the federal prosecutions are really just one component of any solution to the uh, open-air drug market that exists in the Tenderloin. So uh, I'll stop there and uh, and happy to, to take it further, your, your time obviously to command. <laughs> well, I guess I, I my recollection is that it was, I mean, this was a collaboration with the SFPD and, you know, ordin- quote unquote, ordinarily, uh, the district attorney in the county might take the lead on that with the police. Was there a sense and I realize you can't speak for the police department, but my, am I wrong to, to say that uh, the police department and perhaps others concerned about drugs and drug dealing in that neighborhood felt that the DA wasn't making it a priority? Well, I, you're, you're quite right. I won't presume to speak for the SFPD and, and certainly um, 
you know, if I have feedback for our district attorney in San Francisco, I have an opportunity to provide that to him directly. And you might be listening. I, I, well, I think it's fair to say that that Chase uh, Bodine and I look at our jobs in different ways. Uh, we're different people, obviously, um, running different offices. Um, I think the thing that we've done well is that we have exchanged our views in a respectful way, and at no point has it uh, gotten negative or personal. And so I'll uh, stay right on that plane for my last few days in office. Uh, <laughs> he runs his office, I run mine. Uh, if people see a value, uh, whether SFPD or otherwise, to bringing their cases to federal court, there's lots we can do in federal court to help with the problems of a neighborhood like the Tenderloin. All right, let's go to the phones. And again, the number is 866-733-6786. And let's start with Paul in San Francisco. Paul, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having uh, me uh, voice my opinion on a couple of matters. Um, I'm a longtime resident, native of the city for many years. I'm really worried that the DA, the mayor, and the police chief um, are, are not a cohesive group to fight these, you know, horrible crime waves and, you know, open needle exchange, what's going on in the tenderloin. I'm wondering if there's a solution with uh, a kind of a strong government um, coalition that could change San Francisco for the better, maybe in the next decade, or if this is going to continue for, for the long run. Dave Anderson. Well, one of the things that I try to do in the Tenderloin is not make pronouncements about what we might achieve, but instead talk in terms of the resources that we're investing. So, Paul, I'll I'll state in all candor that I have sort of pointedly not answered the excellent question that that you're asking. One of the reasons I, I frame my approach in that way is because I'd seen over the years looking back the sort of waves and generations of public pronouncement by public officials that they were going to sort of cure the problems of the Tenderloin or solve the problems of the Tenderloin. And most of those statements have not aged well. So from from my perspective, every prosecution helps and every prosecution has the potential to, to save a life or every prosecution has the potential to discourage a drug user or a drug trafficker. So we just threw everything that we could at the problem and uh, and and then you know see, see where it goes um you you, you make a, a structural point about the organization of the da the police chief the mayor and how uh, e- each of these entities is sort of a separate reporting entity separately reporting to the public separately accountable to the public and now of course you're way outside of my sphere uh as a prosecutor not a politician Paul, thanks very much for the call. You know, the, one of the, the real concerns from a law, law enforcement perspective and public safety uh, in the last, uh, you know, several months has been an increase in hate crimes against, in particular, Asian Americans, uh, elderly Asian Americans in particular. Do you see a role for the U.S. attorney in that, or are those just sort of individual crimes? They're obviously not being, that kind of crime isn't caused by a ring or, you know, some group of people you can take down with a big investigation. Hate crimes is an important category for us, and um, it's one that we have tried to emphasize in our outreach. It's one that I note with interest was emphasized in the uh, testimony yesterday of uh, Attorney General nominee Garland. The Department of Justice has uh, a tremendous history in the prosecution of hate crime uh, as we know it now. Um, 
you know, going all the way back to the, the founding of the Department of Justice in 1870. So I, I don't think there's a, a prosecutor out there who doesn't see a role for the federal courts in the prosecution of hate crimes. Here's a, a listener who asks, uh, why is the United States attorney a political job? Seems like continuity would be helpful. I note that Senators Durbin and Duckworth, two Democrats, are trying to get Biden to keep U.S. Attorney Lausch in the Northern District of Illinois. Uh, is it possible that uh, President Biden could say, well, you know, Dave, you're doing a pretty good job. Why don't you stick around for a while? I don't think that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the, 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 modern, the modern pattern... Um, of of sweeping out all the U.S. attorneys upon a change in administration actually goes back to President Clinton. Um, once uh, General Reno was confirmed, uh, she swept out all the U.S. attorneys that had previously been appointed. Um, President Trump did it the same way. Um, President uh, um, uh, Bush, uh, President Obama did it more gradually as suggested by the the questioner um but uh you know president biden obviously decided that he was gonna uh, start fresh and uh the positions are at the pleasure of the president president so that's his prerogative when you say as you did uh, i don't think that's possible <laughs> i mean to what extent is that because of tradition or policy versus you were appointed by Donald Trump, and uh, obviously there is a lot of antipathy toward him in California and you know, among Democrats nationwide. Well, to be clear, there's nothing about the um, uh, rollover of all the U.S. attorney's positions that's unique or special to me. Um, I was appointed by President Trump, as, as you correctly note. I'm a lifelong Republican. I don't make any apologies about my party affiliation, but in fulfilling this job as U.S. attorney, I will also note that I was confirmed unanimously that the senators for California returned their blue slips on me. And I have tried throughout the last two years to be a professional enforcer of the federal criminal laws and not in any way uh, enmesh myself or my office in political controversy. So there, I don't think there's anything political about the, the work that we have have done, but um, you know, there's already a vetting process for my successor. And uh, although uh, all of those people who are pressing the senators, pressing the White House, pressing the Department of Justice to be appointed as U.S. attorney, all of them disagree about who should be selected, but they all agree that it shouldn't be me. <laughs> so you're, you're bringing people together, Dave. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to ask you, though, a question about the politicization of the DOJ under President Trump, because uh, the New York Times uh, did an analysis of 240 pardons by Trump. Only 25 of them went through the usual uh, DOJ process, which is, you know, based on merit. And instead, the pardons went to cronies like Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, uh, and often came to Trump through friends, uh, family, celebrities even. What does that kind of use of the presidential commutation power do to the integrity of that power? Well, I can speak from my experience over the last two years. Over the last two years as U.S. Attorney, I, I called the shots in this district. Uh, I did so without interference. There was nothing about my experience that suggested that somehow uh, our work had been politicized. And um, so that, that, in that sense, there was nothing different, I don't think, about the past two years, at least in the Northern District of California as compared to 
any other two-year period. The, the pardons are interesting, and uh, as to that, I don't have but just the, the slightest personal experience. Um, and, and in that sense, I have a, uh, a window into the pardons that were granted by the president uh, arising out of prosecutions and convictions obtained here, including the pardon of uh, a defendant who, in fairness, I won't name, um, but a, a, the pardon of a defendant who I personally prosecuted a, uh, a decade uh, ago when um, I was previously serving in the office in, uh, in a lower position. And what does that do to you? I mean, you you know, how does that make you feel? That old question, uh, because you you know, you put a lot of time and effort into it. And I'm, and while some of these pardons didn't involve cases here in this district, I'm guessing you've talked with your fellow U.S. attorneys, uh, some of whom worked tirelessly for months and years to get some of these convictions, and then they're just uh, with you know the stroke of a pen overturned, basically. Well, I mean, I, you, I, I I mean it's that. hard to believe that it, that it doesn't have a dispiriting or you know infuriating impact. I'm not dispirited. I'm not infuriated. <laughs> the, the work that I did was uh, was good work. The prosecution that I mounted was a good prosecution, and the conviction was a good conviction. And it was held on a, upheld on appeal. Um, the the sentence was served. And so everything about that work, I think, was done in the right way. Um, you know, the fact that there's this separate process uh, enshrined in the Constitution for the president to uh, exercise his pardon authority. Uh, you know, how, how, could I how could I speak against that? Even the way it was exercised the past, you know, few years? Again, um, there's nothing in my experience that would connect to the question. Really, I think, Scott, and I respect you're asking me you're, you're asking me for a, a political perspective on a, a decision by president trump that was uh you know uh, uh prompted a range of reactions all across the political spectrum that's not really my job all right let's go back to the phones and ryan i'm sorry daniel in san francisco you're next yeah i, I just sort of want to unpack what i see as um really grasping for low-hanging fruit. In reality, the folks there in the tenderloin are living in essentially uh, a tent city down there. You have gone in and taken the full weight of the federal government, and you're basically prosecuting very low-level criminal offenders who have drug problems to begin with, and then going out there and boasting about it. And I do not believe that that is an appropriate use of the full weight of the federal government. Dave Anderson, is that an accurate description of what your what your office is doing? Well, I'm grateful for the question. If Daniel's thinking about it, other people probably are too. The, 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 what I would say is, first of all, define what we're doing in the FIT program. The FIT program is directed at all forms of federal criminal activity in the Tenderloin to include uh, drug trafficking, to include um, human trafficking to include um, uh, violence, including attempted murder, to include RICO conspiracy, escape, firearms offenses, robbery. The FIT program is not directed at drug users, and I want to speak a little bit about that. But uh, you know, Daniel refers to the tent city and the tenderloin and the compassion that he feels for the people who are living in the tent city and the tenderloin. And I think he makes a fair point. It's hard to look at those conditions and not feel compassion. But as a prosecutor, I have more compassion for those people who are trying to live law-abiding lives 
in the tenderloin. So I think of the single mom who who is trying to shepherd maybe a, a young son to to school and back or the playground and back or the store and back who has to run this gauntlet of crime. So that's the person for whom I have greater compassion. And um, so, you know, I think um, Daniel's characterized our work in some ways that are fair, but in other ways that are that are unfair. And I think also Daniel's put an emphasis on the offender, whereas I put an emphasis on those members of the community. But just to be clear, are you saying, uh, Dave, that the people living in tents are the source of the crime? Because, I mean, are, are some of the operations that you crack down on being run out of people living in those tents? Because obviously s- the person you described earlier, the mom trying to get her kids to school, she could be living in one of those tents. Well, the, the, um, the reality is that the, not all, not all, but the overwhelming percentage of those folks who are living uh, on the streets in the Tenderloin are engaged in some kind of drug crime. And um, in saying that, I want to draw a sharp distinction, because there is a sharp distinction, in fact, between drug traffickers and drug users. And I think probably some of your listeners, Scott, have in mind sort of the idea of the the, the drug trafficker as user, um, you know, maybe the, you know, sort of the happy hippie idea uh, that, you know, uh, you, you sell to sustain your habit, um, that kind of thing. That, that pattern of behavior you might see with less powerful illegal drugs. But when you're talking about fentanyl, which is this uh, massive new threat to our community, or other drugs of that potency, um, if you start to use those drugs, you're pretty quickly useless for anything other than that. Um, and, and, and so th- there is this sharp distinction between traffickers and users. Now, users might be used in the course of distribution. Uh, they might be holders because penalties will, will uh, accelerate ba- based on the quantity of drugs that are uh, possessed for sale. So you might have a user sitting there on the corner to, to hold the drugs. But that drug trafficker is, is a predator. That drug trafficker uh, is a highly capitalistic uh, business person. The end objective of uh, whose efforts is, in most cases, the, the destruction of the drug user. So yeah. those are the people who who we have uh, directed our efforts against. Yeah. Uh, just about a minute and a half left. <laughs> so another complicated question, pardon me, but I know you can't talk about the ongoing corruption uh, uh, investigation in San Francisco, but you've gotten several guilty pleas. It's brought down the heads of DPW, Department of uh, Building Inspection, the PUC and others. Why is it important to pursue cases like that? The public has, an, uh, I think, a, a just expectation of honesty in their public officials. I think uh, now probably more than at any time previously, there's distrust of government at all levels. So when you see someone who's using public office for personal gain, 
it's it's not just uh, outraging in the particular case, but it's undermining of confidence, public confidence in government more generally. So I consider the case category generally, and as you say, Scott, not talking about any particular case, but I consider the case category generally of public corruption to be tremendously yeah. important. All right. Outgoing U.S. Attorney Dave Anderson, uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, and thanks for your service. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Best of luck to you and whatever you do next. I'm Scott Schaefer here this hour. And coming up in the next hour, uh, I'm not sure if it's, I won't say who the host is. <laughs> I think it might be Rachel Myro. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your comments and your questions. I'll be back tomorrow at nine. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking with the new police chief of Oakland. Stay tuned for more from Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.